Well, as patriotic Americans, we're accustomed to saying that freedom isn't free. We understand that the freedoms we enjoy, that we oftentimes take for granted, came at the price of blood. Someone had to die. Someone had to do acts of violence and put themselves in harm's way to secure and then defend the very life we like to live. And so, as a nation, multiple times a year we commemorate this, do we not? We have July 4th, which celebrates the Act of Declaration of Independence, where Congress approved and ratified the document authored primarily by Thomas Jefferson. Of course, skirmishes of the Revolutionary War had already taken place, but this day made it official. And so we commemorate this day every year even though in the minds of many, it's just a day for fireworks shows. We have Memorial Day, in which we remember those who died. And as a veteran, it's a pet peeve of mine. Memorial Day is not Veterans Day. Memorial Day is to remember the dead. Veterans Day is a day to remember those who have served. So we have multiple days in our own national conscience conscience by which we remember the fact that freedom isn't free. And here in this passage, what we see is essentially the establishment of a memorial for the people of God that we too may remember that our liberation was not free. Our bondage to sin, our bondage to the powers of darkness was not broken by accident or at a costless price. Redemption was costly. Now, just to catch you up for where we've been, we've seen how the people of God in bondage in Egypt was just the tip of the iceberg. The real problem was not that they were in political slavery or socio-slavery uh, to Pharaoh, The real problem was that after 430 years in Egypt, the people of God were in bondage to the gods of Egypt. They had come to believe in and serve and to value as important the things that the Egyptians had come to value as important. And so the exodus is just as much about getting Egypt out of the people of God as it is about getting the people of God out of Egypt. And so this passage right here records the event. It records their exodus, their departure from Egypt. And like I said before I read the scripture, there is no passage in the Old Testament that has left such an indelible mark on the people of God. This passage is laden with theological significance. The language and allusions to the Passover are pervasive throughout the Old Testament. So much so that over a millennia later, at the height of his ministry, John the Baptist sees his relative Jesus coming. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So even in the New Testament, 
there are allusions to this passage seeing Christ as the fulfillment. What is it about this passage that is so significant? It's Christological significance that we see here underscores that this is not simply a passage that teaches the, the political liberation of one group from another. This passage is a favorite passage amongst every liberation group. It was hugely popular in the civil rights era. It's been popular in Latin and South America to this day. Okay, every time there's an oppressed people group, they look at this passage. But it has a Christological focus that tells us that something more than slavery liberation is going on here. This passage introduces the concept of Passover and the concept of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the same passage, these two religious observances for the Israelites coincide together with Passover sort of being the pinnacle of the celebration. Now these two observances, these two remembrances that the people of God are to celebrate in perpetuity provide a backward and forward look. A backward and forward look. The acts of God and redemption require us to look backwards, to remember what He has done, that we might praise Him, that we might fear Him, that we might love Him and obey Him. But it also calls us to have a forward look, to remember that what God did in the past is a foretaste of something he's going to do in the future. The reason the Passover language is pervasive throughout the Old Testament is that even the Jew, Jewish rabbis understood <coughs> that this was looking forward to something else. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews goes on to tell us that the blood of lambs, the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for sin. So, of course, we were looking forward to something perfect. The Passover meal that's talked about here, we celebrate a, a refurbished version of it when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Did you know that? But the Lord's Supper has that same backward and forward look. Backward because it recalls and proclaims that Christ has died for sin. It, it reminds us of what Christ has done, but it points forward to something, doesn't it? It points forward to the promise that he's coming again. That there will be a great marriage supper of the Lamb where all God's people are joined with Jesus and we have a great feast in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's backward and there's forward. But I'd like to point out that the language of Passover points to what we're saved from. And the language of the Feast of Unleavened Bread points to what we're saved for. What we're saved from and what we're saved for. It's kind of like the language of repentance. Repentance is a turning away from something to something else, right? So we're saved from something for something. What are we saved from? 
This passage is different. You may recall that as I've taken us through this, I have underscored that what's happening here is a theological war between the God of Israel and the God of Egypt. Pharaoh is the chief of their pantheon. He's, he's, he's raw in the flesh. The Egyptians were polytheists, so they believed in multiple gods. But they were also pantheists, which means that everything in the physical world is a manifestation of the divine. So when God struck the river and the river turned blood, that was striking the God associated with the river. That was the God bleeding. Okay? The fundamental problem that the Israelites had was that they had entrusted themselves to the gods of Egypt. This problem of idolatry runs deep in the human heart. This isn't just an Egyptian problem. Romans 1 makes clear that idolatry is at the core of mankind's rebellion against God. We talk about Romans 1, 18 and following, and we oftentimes get hung up on the fact that it's talking about homosexuality. Homosexuality is just an illustration of a point. The point of the passage is not homosexuality. The point of the passage is idolatry, which is why it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the, to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator, the creature, rather than the creator. So idolatry is the core problem of mankind. And here in Egypt, after 400 years, the people of God have become enculturated. They've acclimated to their surroundings. And they've seen the mighty works of the Egyptians and said, Wow! This makes a lot of sense. They've got it figured out. Now the prideful desire of man to be a God runs deep. Ever since the fall, when Adam and Eve were told, you shall be like God if you eat of it. You will be like God. Wow. That runs deep in human hearts. But that hasn't created a world full of atheists Atheism doesn't survive in the real world unless it's propped up. Okay? Why, does people, why do people everywhere then result to paganism? Because it's one thing to proudly assert I'm a god to myself. Self-determination, self-fulfillment, all that stuff. <clears throat> but then you go out and you butt up against the real world. And the real world's dangerous. And there's storms. And there's droughts and there's floods, and there's pests, and there's things that want to eat you. And you realize that in the grand scheme of this creation, we are not as big as we think we are. And people become afraid. But in their hearts, because they hate the true and living God, they turn 
then instead to something else, anything else that they can wrap their arms and their hopes around to give them safety, to keep chaos at bay, to give themselves meaning and order whereby they think they can have a modicum of control over their lives and surroundings. That's what paganism is all about. Finding what itch you need to scratch of that gone so that he will do what it is you want him to do. And so people everywhere produce idols. In our own culture, we have idols. Money gives me what I want. Beauty. In this digital age, the age of social media, how many people are running themselves into the ground pursuing likes and followers? Finding their identity. Feeling like everything is bottomed out if this doesn't happen or go my way. If my bank account dries up, I'm ruined. You see, the basic point of a God is to give us life, to protect us and preserve us, to keep us alive in this harsh world that wants to destroy us. So this is why God has been hammering the gods of Egypt for nine plagues. Plague after plague has been hammering home the truth that the gods in whom you trust to preserve and protect your life can avail you not. You trust in the surgeons to keep you healthy and alive. They can't even stand before the living God. You trust in the powers of the economy to keep you secure in your bed. And they are but smoke and ash. The living God is supreme. Now there's over 2,000 gods in the Egyptian pantheon. Is God supposed to hammer 2,000 plagues? So this 10th plague is a special one. After relentlessly pounding them with nine plagues that, have, that has left their economy, their culture, and their country in shambles, the 10th plague is the cherry on the top. It's the exclamation point at the end of that sentence. And the point of it is that there is no God among you, Egyptians, that can keep you alive. None. And they understand the point afterwards when they say we will all be dead. The point being that if God can just go through and kill all the firstborn like that, then no one is safe. None of these gods can protect. Now here's the difference between this plague and the others as well. In plagues 1, 2, and 3, the people of God had to experience the inconvenience. They shared in the suffering. But starting with plagues 4 through 9, God put a cone of protection around the land of Goshen where they didn't experience the suffering or hardship. But God doesn't do that here. Have you ever wondered why the Passover even had to happen? Why didn't God just do that same cone of protection around the land of Goshen and and, and smite everyone outside it and leave Goshen this this untouched place of, of bliss? Why didn't he? Because the Lord now is coming, it says explicitly, in judgment. And this passage drives home. This is a picture of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. 
and we don't hear it talked about in Exodus. You have to go all the way to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20. But here's what God says. As he's recounting the repeated rebellion of God's people, here's what God says. Thus says the Lord, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. This is important. Now it's at verse 7. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things you feast on, your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. You want to know why the Passover was necessary? Because they were sinners. They were worshipers of the very gods the Egyptians worshipped. And the wages of sin, the consequence of idolatry, is not just tyranny in this life. It's judgment from the Almighty God. Verses 13 and 23 of this passage must have startled them. (coughs) For they both say that the Lord would visit their houses. The Lord would come by their house too. That must have been a horrible sound. A horrible thought. That the Lord was going to come by their house in judgment as he went throughout the land of Egypt killing every firstborn. If the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven in Romans 1 and these people had refused to listen to God Even while they were in Egypt, they refused to not worship the idols of Egypt. And God was going to execute judgment against the gods of Egypt and against those who stubbornly refused to repent. That's why there was two choices. They die or God provide a way. And so in this chapter, what we see is God instituting The notion of a substitute. You see, every single house in Egypt was going to wind up with a body count of one. Every single house. Your house will either contain a dead firstborn or a dead lamb. There will be a dead body in every house. The wages of sin is death. And there's an entire sacrificial system that's built upon the premise here that the blood of the lamb is an acceptable sacrifice and substitute for the blood of the person. And so sacrificing the lamb and marking the doors was a sign of faith. 
saying, we are covered here. We have obeyed the word of the Lord. And we are trusting in him for deliverance. And the Lord would come and see that and pass by, satisfied. You see, the very thing that the Passover reminds us that we're saved from is the wrath of God himself. The destroyer is not an angel. It's not a demon. It's not an impersonal force. Verse 13 says, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The thing, brothers and sisters, that people need saved from is the wrath of a God who is angry at their sin and rebellion. And in his mercy he has made a way that he might not destroy them. And so the Passover lamb is just that. The way. Now this night must have been horrible. We read in earlier chapters that the name of Moses was great amongst the Egyptians. Okay, God had said, I have made you, and our English versions want to create the sense of simile or metaphor, so it says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. The Hebrew does not have the word like. I have made you God to Pharaoh. So Moses is a powerful man in the eyes of Pharaoh. And we've already seen that word has gotten out to the Egyptian populace. Now imagine, just imagine that you're an Egyptian. And you've heard the tales of this Moses. And your life has been destroyed. Your country has been destroyed. Your, your, your livestock have been destroyed. Your plants, your fields, your herds have been wiped out. And now you hear... Moses says that his God is going to kill our firstborn at midnight. Have you ever wondered why they knew to get up in the middle of the night? I don't think they were sleeping. I think they were terrified. I don't think that they died screaming, and I think they just died. But they were terrified. This God, who had just destroyed everything, was now coming for their firstborn. And the people of Egypt were terrified. This is why they're so eager in the morning. This is why they knew to attribute it to the Lord. Now think about this. Most of them still did not repent. There's a mixed multitude, though, that goes out with, Egypt, with Israel. This is how merciful God is. He accepts more than just the native-born. He's not a tribal deity. I'm inclined to think that the mixed multitude did not just lose their firstborn and then decide, oh, I'm going to follow God anyway. I think this mixed multitude includes the very same people who had trusted the word of the Lord enough to get their flocks in out of the, out of the weather for the hailstorm. I'm willing to bet that even though it's not recorded, that they had heard what Moses said to his own people and that they too followed the instruction. I'm guessing that. Because our God is a gracious God who invites converts. And he accepted that multitude into his people. Just like he accepts converts from every tribe and tongue even this day. The Passover points to the fact that we are saved from the wrath of God 
against our sin and rebellion. The fact that we even now, even now, each one of us struggles with idolatry. We do. We put our hopes in so many things. But our God has saved us from his wrath. That's beautiful. But then the Feast of the Unleavened Bread alludes to what God has saved us for. We leave it to future uh, biblical revelation to, uh, to unpack the significance. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where Paul calls Christ our Passover lamb, he, he makes the connection here that the, that the leaven here refers to the fact that we are to get rid of all the influences of the world. Leaven has to do with purity. The laws about removing leaven have to do with restoring and maintaining holiness. So Paul then is able to write, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So all throughout the Old Testament, the Levitical laws, the dietary laws, you see a system of, of, of rules set in place that demonstrate that they were saved from tyranny and obedience and, and, and allegiance to the gods of the world. And we were saved for holiness. We were saved for good works. You see this at the end of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We love to part. We were saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, a city man should boast. Oh, we love that part. But then verse 10. So that you can do the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. In the Old Testament, God is on a mission. And in Exodus, God is on a missiological endeavor here to make people believers in himself. That's why he keeps repeating, I am the Lord. You will know that I am the Lord. And so they were to be a city on a hill, a people set free from tyranny to false gods, living lives of holiness. And so it was a come and see type of thing. As they engaged in international commerce, and, and as people just passed by, they, wow, what a great God these people have. Look at these laws, it's wonderful. But of course, they failed. We are called to be a city on a hill, are we not? We are called to be exemplars of, of our piety, demonstrating the beauty of the commands of the Lord, having been set free from slavery to false gods. But do we? That's the question. So with a strong arm, the Lord leads the people out of Egypt. They had to run in haste. Like so many other things, uh, the observance got changed over centuries. If you read this now, read it, and, and you know, they're, they're eating. It's not a joyous time. They're scared. They're hearing people crying around them. They're eating, it says the meat with it roasted with its inner parts. I mean, that sounds really gross. And it's just meat unleavened bread and bitter herbs and then they got to get out of dodge they run in the middle of the night they flee so it was a night that they would never forget 
a night that the people of God have remembered. But we are always reminded that the Lord saved us with a strong arm. And so when Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed and he arose victorious, he has led us out. He has led a train of captives, it says. And we are his. He has liberated us from God's wrath and enslavement to the devil. So Jesus is our second exodus. Remember it. Celebrate it. Remember that even though God has done a great thing in the past, it points forward to the consummation when everything will be made perfect. What a great day that will be. You are free, but your freedom was not free. It cost. And the death count when our freedom was purchased was exactly one. The Son of God died for the many. And God was pleased. The righteous for the unrighteousness, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's beautiful. You have been forgiven. Now walk in the light for which you were saved. Let's pray.